0: Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Royal Meteorological Society podcast. I'm Richard, I'm the digital person here. We also have
1: Uh, Liz Bentley, Chief Executive at the Royal Met Society.
2: And I'm Chloe Moore, Meteorologist and Head of Partnerships. This year International Women's Day is Thursday the 8th of March and it's a day to mark and recognise women's achievements socially, economically, culturally and politically. International Women's Day has been celebrated for well over a century now with the first day held in New York in 1909. I think more than ever, there's a strong call to action to continue to empower women addressing the challenges for us across the globe. Our podcast today focuses on both the obstacles for women, but also the achievements that have been made in STEM subjects. So that's science, technology, engineering and mathematics. We'll be hearing from meteorologists, climate scientists, managers and those who work in education and outreach about their career paths in the field. We'll also look at issues they may have faced as women in the workplace and how we can actively encourage more young girls to fully participate in and choose STEM professions. So without further ado, let's begin our seventh podcast and happy International Women's Day. So our first guest today is Ellie Highwood, Professor of Climate Physics and Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at University of Reading, and also President of the Royal Meteorological Society. So welcome Ellie. Good morning. Um, Ellie, can you tell us a bit about first how you got into atmospheric physics and climate science? Yes, yeah, so I, um, I,
0: I wanted to be an astronaut when I was younger, um, but one of the first news stories I remember was the Challenger disaster. So I, I rapidly decided that, that I didn't want to be an astronaut anymore. Um, and I, w- I went and did a physics degree. And in the final year of my physics degree at Manchester, I had three things that I was really interested in. Medical physics, um, uh, particle physics, and atmospheric physics, because I'd done an option uh, optional module on that. Um, I'm a little bit too squeamish to do the medical physics, Mm -hmm. Um, and between the other two I just thought, well, the weather you can see every day. So I wanted to do something that was relevant to people every single day. Um, So I went and did a PhD at Reading
2: in um, meteorology, and I've been there ever since, really. And you've been president of Royal Meteorological Society now for almost two years.
0: Yes, almost two years. I was vice president for um, three years before that, actually. So, um, I, And I was on council probably two decades ago yes. when I was a, an early career researcher and looking for opportunities to get experience of networking and things like that. So I was on council for a while then and on the education committee. And then I had a break for a while. And then I was very pleased to come back as vice president and president
2: So over those few decades, you've probably been to lots of Royal Meteorological Society events. We host lots of meetings and conferences throughout the year. And something we found is that women in science ask fewer questions than men. And that's not just at our events, but also according to research. And do you find this is the case at events you attend and maybe what can be done to address the issue? That's
0: really interesting. We did... um some similar work at Reading because we noticed that in our seminars um, we, we actually have quite a good gender balance at the Department of Meteorology, um, but all the questions were being asked by men. Um, so we did a survey across all our staff and students said, why are people not asking questions? And I got a response from lots of people, both men and women. Um, the interesting thing was the reasons why people weren't asking questions was they felt that um, they were asking a, a, a silly question. Um, I I myself really really don't like asking questions I have to force myself to I have to when I go to a meeting set myself a goal of saying I will ask this many questions Um, and I have to try and override that because normally I sit there and I wait and I I don't ask a question and then somebody else asks the question I was about to ask and it turns out it wasn't that silly in the first place Um, so in our results we had the same issues came up for both men and women all different stages of their careers. Um, But it probably is true that overall, and we notice it at particularly international conferences, um, women ask less questions. I now have a team of postdocs who got so wound up by this that they will go out and to every conference they're at and every meeting that they're at, they do a gender count of the audience and a gender count of the question answers and a gender count of the panel speakers. And so we are building up a bit of a body of data on it How to fix it is harder. I think a lot can be done with good session chairs at conferences and meetings. So you deliberately kind of pick, make sure you you don't just pick the same old faces. Um, And by making it a friendly, open discussion rather than an interrogation, then I think that also helps.
2: And do you think diversity-related issues are being acknowledged and discussed openly and frequently enough? I think we've seen a
0: massive increase in the recognition and certainly the discussion of diversity and um, inclusion issues, particularly in terms of gender. Um, You maybe see less, certainly in the UK, in terms of race and ethnicity and less in terms of disability, but they're there. Um, But particularly in terms of gender, you've seen a huge explosion of discussion of it, partly on social media, partly in the press, partly through these big... um, Actions against big employers, talking about the BBC and, and others. So I think at least we are now talking about it. Um, the solutions, there is no one solution to give us uh, gender equality. Uh, and all the solutions are very different depending on the environment that you're in. And I think that's the challenge, is, is not trying to sort of take something off the shelf and say this, this is what you should do but to tailor it to where you are and what the particular issues are in your sector.
2: Now, I'm not sure what the balance is at the University of Reading and previous places you've worked, but generally women constitute 30% of the world's researchers, and that's statistics from UNESCO in STEM disciplines. And what do you think can be done about that and maybe to better address the issue going forward?
0: That's a really good question. And I think um, one of our fellow learned societies, the Institute of Physics, has done some really good work on Um, encouraging more women into STEM at a young age and I think what they found was that actually you need to start working on that from a young a very young age so we need to be in primary schools we need to be talking about and fighting against some of the gender stereotypes that are set up at a very early age so people form their gender um, stereotypes by about the age of six or seven so some research from King's University in London talks about by that age, girls already associate being a scientist with being smart and being smart with being a boy. And that's something we've got to, to somehow break.
2: And you, you are a STEM ambassador. You do lots of work in schools. What's your experience been doing that work?
0: Yes, I am a STEM ambassador. I do lots of work for as a STEM ambassador, as a, a representative of the Royal Meteorological Society. I actually have been concentrating on primary schools for the last few years for this reason. Um, It's interesting. I will walk into a classroom and be introduced as a scientist or Professor Ellie, which is what lots of my school groups call me. Um, I have short hair and I'm quite tall. And quite often the youngest children, the age five or six, will ask me whether I am a man or a woman. Um, And then they will say, well, scientists are men. Um, I had a five or six year old, a six year old child say to me last last week in a practical session, can I have a different color pen because purple is a girl's color? And so I said to him, you can have a different color pen if you don't like the color purple, but you can't have a different color pen because it's a girl's color because there's no such things as girls colors and boys colors. And so sometimes you can have really interesting discussions, but I do see it all the time, they, they come out. And my year six, 11 and, 10 and 11 year olds, we had a particular discussion about could they name any famous scientists? Now, they had done Marie Curie actually as a biography subject in English the year before. So they all named Marie Curie and Isaac Newton. But then they could list other male scientists and not, not, not any women. So now they know more women scientists.
2: They can name you now, Ellie. Well, that is
0: true. <laughs> and And they did try to do that as the answer to the question, but they, they now know more. We, we made them do some research in their homework time and so they now have a huge list of women scientists.
2: Oh Well thank you very much for joining us this morning and sharing your experiences of your work in STEM. Thank you. Our next guest is Professor Liz Bentley, Chief Executive at the Royal Meteorological Society. So hi Chloe. Hi Liz. Um, so can you tell us about your career path through meteorology? Yeah.
1: So I, I knew, I guess, at an early age that I wanted to go into a career as a meteorologist from a, probably from about the age of maybe 13, 14. And I went off to university and did a maths degree and then a PhD in maths and then joined the Met Office. So 25 years ago, I joined the Met Office as a research scientist, but but knew quite quickly that I wanted to go into operational meteorology. Having, I think, done my PhD, I wanted to understand how the research was being applied in a more practical sense. So I trained as a weather forecaster at the Met Office back in 1993 and then went off uh, to be a weather forecaster for a few years, mainly working in the Ministry of Defence. Um, after that, I um, then went into training meteorologists. I went to work at the Met Office College as a trainer, taking people through the um, foundation courses in, in meteorology. Uh, and then went to work uh, for a stint at the BBC as the BBC Weather Centre manager when it was based up at the TV Centre. Um, went back into the Ministry of Defence for a short while um, before joining the Royal Meteorological Society, actually about 10 years ago, almost to the day when I joined the Royal Met Society as head of comms here and then took over as chief executive about 3 years ago.
2: So you've worked in all the sort of big meteorological organisations throughout the UK. Have you faced any challenges in your field that you think may be linked to gender? Yes,
1: and and it's interesting how it's changed over the 25 years I've been involved in in meteorology. So when I first started out, as I mentioned, I was a a weather forecaster, mainly working with the RAF and the Army at the time, and I was probably the only female. In fact, even going through my training course, there were only three females being trained up as meteorologists at the time, very heavily dominated by by male uh, colleagues. But certainly when I worked in the Ministry of Defence, I was probably one of the only females in that whole environment. And that was quite a challenge actually, quite difficult, but actually something that I I felt um, you know it was, it was quite important for me to kind of get involved in and, and to take forward. And it's really interesting now in my role at the Royal Meteorological Society as an assessor of meteorology. So we go out to assess people for chartered and registered meteorologists to see how that's changed over the last 20 or 25 years. So we go out to those REF stations, some of them that I actually worked at, and you can see that now there's... More than half of the people working there are females. In fact, some of the managers there are females as well. So there's been a real change over the last two decades, and that's really been a positive sign for me. Um, you know, so I think it broke down those barriers 20 years ago, and actually we're starting to see them kind of pushing through now in, in current day.
2: And as you said, you've been in quite a few managerial roles, now you're chief executive here at the society. According to a 2013 study, women comprise a third of the global workforce at National Meteorological and Hydrological Services. And around 19% of senior managers are women. How do you think we can close the gender gap around this issue?
1: Yeah, it's a difficult one and, and it will take time. And I think part of that is is having role models. So someone like myself, like Ellie, in these roles um, that, that actually, you know, children can then aspire to and, and actually look and think, okay, this is this is achievable. It's not it's not out of my reach. So having those role models, encouraging, providing the support. I, I do think, um, I and mean, again, we, I've chatted with Ellie about this on a number of occasions, that there are, if you tend to find women tend to be more reluctant to put themselves forward for things like promotions, and, and I guess these managerial roles as well. And it's actually, as a manager, encouraging your members of staff to put themselves in those positions. They are, they do have the capability, the strength, the skills, the experience to put themselves forward. So it's, it's in, in the role that I'm in, mean, it's actually encouraging those around me, giving them the support to actually put themselves forward for those roles as well.
2: I think the role models is a really important issue because you have world-famous scientists such as Marie Curie and things, and sometimes that can be almost too aspirational and you need a role model close to home, someone who's gone through a similar career path to you. So doing the early career conferences we do, be it going and doing STEM work in schools, and having that role model close to home who you can more closely associate to... Whether they become a mentor or something can really help the field.
1: That's right, and you're right. We we have our student conferences, and and there's typically about half of the people there are, are female. But it's giving them, I guess, the aspiration or or confidence to know that they can move on through their career and take on more managerial roles rather than just thinking there's a limit, there's a glass ceiling that they can can only reach certain roles and certain positions. No, there isn't. You know, you're just as well capable, experienced, skilled to get and, and get yourselves in those positions.
0: But I think it's also about being flexible about those senior roles as well, because Something we've had success with is is advertising our senior university roles as job share. So I was a head of department job share for a while. People said you couldn't do that as a job share, but yes, actually you could. Mm -hmm. Um, We Now, my current role, leadership role in the senior leadership team at the university, Dean for Diversity and Inclusion, is a job share role. Um, And we've just appointed our first job share partnership for a pro-vice-chancellor role. If you're creative about those roles and more flexible, it's not necessarily about only about telling women that they can apply um, and that they are capable of doing those things. It's about making the roles flexible and interesting and the behaviour of the teams into which they're going to become more inclusive um, is just as, if not more so, important.
2: Because there's been lots of talk about the gender pay gap and things, but and women negotiating for the same pay and things, but equally negotiating for a situation that works for your work-home balance is also really important.
0: And I think that's important for for everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just for women. Um, In fact, we've had quite a lot of of, uh, men taking parental leave, shared parental leave, um, and some of the issues about returning to work after a career break Um, are absolutely the same for men, women, whether it's caring for children, caring for elders or all those kinds of things. So we need to to look after our workforces and make sure that whoever they are, for whatever reason they've had a break, they're able to come back in Mm. and start contributing again quickly. And that's about changing the environment, not necessarily about changing the individuals.
2: Well, thank you both very much for your time this morning. We will have our next guest up shortly to celebrate Women in Weather for International Women's Day on the 8th of March. Our next guest today is Jenny Campbell. Jenny is previously CEO of a weather business, former RMET's president and is now working as a consultant. So welcome, Jenny. Hi, lovely to see you, Chloe. Thank you. So, Jenny, what's your background about how
3: you ended up working in meteorology? Well, I have quite an interesting route into the world of meteorology. Obviously, I'm not a meteorologist, but um, I started out my career working for a small independent production company that was providing page-ready services to newspapers. And um, we were providing TV listings, arts and entertainment listings, and also weather pages. And I was a director of that business, director and shareholder of that business, that was sold to the Press Association in 1996, so um, I, as a director of the Press Association, I was involved in the establishment of the Press Association Weather Centre, the PA Weather Centre, which was a joint venture with a Dutch weather business, Meteo Consult. I was a director of that business for some years, and in 2005, we, the Press Association purchased Meteo Consult in its entirety, um, which was an international weather business at that point. And I was appointed as Managing Director and then subsequently CEO. Um, so that's how I got involved in weather.
2: So you've been involved in a range of businesses, journalism and management. Mm-hmm. And now you're in the science sector, which is what we're talking about here today, specifically women yeah. in the weather industry. Yeah. Have you faced any challenges in your field that you think may be linked to gender?
3: Well, it's interesting, actually, that you mentioned the world of journalism. Um, In senior management, there are many challenges for women. There are challenges getting your voice heard, particularly in the boardroom. Um, And it's interesting that I probably experienced those more in the world of media. In actual fact, I found the world of meteorology a a very supportive world for women. I found scientists um, very easy to work with um, from a senior management point of view. And actually in my experience meteorology was a great place to work as a woman um and in particular as a female ceo oh i'm glad you say we're such a friendly bunch um as yourself
2: you worked as a senior manager and we were talking to liz our previous guest who's chief executive here at the society senior managers there are far less women in that field and why do you Mm. think that is especially in the environment sector
3: yeah that 's an interesting question, you know in my experience there's i mean there are a number of reasons why that 's the case, but for me, there is one very clear standout reason and that 's because women never ask they don 't ask for that promotion they don 't ask for that pay rise. men are really good at doing that women are rubbish at self promotion at selling themselves they always underestimate their own skills and capabilities, and they just won't ask um, and I think that's the single You know, one of the single most important factors when it comes to women taking on management roles, putting themselves forward, you know, competing in the world of work, is they're too modest and they're too self-effacing. They're not the people who will knock on their manager's door, walk in and say, I'm really good at this and I think I can do it and I deserve that promotion. Whereas men will do that, you know, all the time. And I think that's probably... You know, would be my message to myself, actually, as a younger person, you know, knock on the door, sell yourself, even if it's a role where you feel you're stretching your skills, you know, you can do it, just knock on that door and say, I want to take this on. And I think that's probably one of the most important things in terms of getting on as a woman. That was going to be my next question. If
2: you had to give yourself a piece of wisdom that you know now that maybe you would have told your younger self is, what advice? And we were talking about this with Ellie and Liz, about Mm. not just the gender pay gap, but also asking for flexible working that fits your situation.
3: Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that's right. And I think, but even at the, the bottom of that, it is asking. It is having the courage, instead of just accepting that because you've taken maternity leave, perhaps some doors are closed to you instead of accepting that put yourself out there and ask for it and I think you know ask for flexible working ask for part-time ask for a pay rise and ask for a promotion and I I think that's the one thing that women can do um, to help them move on in the in the world of work
2: well thank you very much for providing your insight into women in weather thanks Jenny that's lovely thanks nice to meet you Clay. Okay, so our next guest is Dr. Cat Miller. She is public engagement program manager here at the Royal Meteorological Society, and also honorary research fellow at Birmingham University. So, welcome, Kat. Hello. Hello, Cat. Can you tell us a bit about how you first got into atmospheric sciences, meteorology?
4: Yeah. So I think, like a lot of people who get into this subject, uh, my passion was uh, sparked at a young age. Um, when I was about eleven, I was obsessed with watching the news, not for the actual news but for the weather forecast at the end to see whether there was going to be a snowfall event or whether there's going to be a heat wave. Um, and at that time, I think I did want to be a TV weather girl, as we used to call them. Um, but actually, I didn't actually take that career path. Um, so I ended up going down a sort of uh, more research uh, route. Um, and on the back of that, I've ended up working at the Royal Meteorological Society as head of public engagement um, so that's sort of how I got into, into the field.
2: So you've been in academia and now work in a charity with the Royal Meteorological Society. And in your experiences so far, have you found that women have been underrepresented in STEM subjects? And when did you maybe first start becoming aware of this? Um, I'd say
4: that when I was doing a PhD um, in my PhD office, we had um, fairly even representation of, of men and women. Um, in fact, there might have been slightly more women that were doing PhDs at that time. I think it's really um after that level where people start to go down a research career path and it's very much short term contracts um that you start to see a, a drop off in researchers um you know there's there's very much a, a a need to move around different institutions and obviously if women are starting to think about families that that makes it a bit more difficult and I think at that stage certainly a lot of my colleagues have have looked elsewhere be it in private companies or they've moved into communication roles uh, rather than pursue that academic route
2: so maybe more support for especially females in postdoc roles in the shorter term contracts yeah i think it's
4: very difficult though because it's all about publications and as a female if you do take time off um, to have a child there is that gap in your publications record and it's very much when it comes to uh, promotions that's very much what people look at. So it, it, it's. I think it's quite a difficult one to actually get the balance right. Um, but yeah, definitely, if there's more, I guess, awareness at senior levels that this happens and, and understanding that this happens, then that could potentially um, improve the situation for female researchers.
2: And for you, who've maybe been notable women role models in STEM but also in meteorology throughout your career?
4: Um, I think I've been very lucky that I've had quite a few um, female uh, Researchers that I've worked with over the years. I've worked with uh, Professor Sue Grimond uh, on a research project who is very top of her game um, And more recently at the society, uh, we've got Professor Liz Bentley, who's chief executive here uh, We've also got Professor Ellie Highwood who is current president. Uh, I think they both demonstrate that with a lot of hard work and commitment You really can reach the top of your game
2: Thanks Kat for sharing that Our next guest is Felicity Liggins, Outreach Manager at the Met Office, so welcome Felicity. Thank you very much. And you are also Chair of our Education and Outreach Committee here at the Society.
5: I am, yes. I co-chair the Society's uh, Education and Outreach Committee with Jenny Rourke, who is one of our forecasters at the Met Office.
2: And you said you studied geology, so one of the wider environmental sciences. How did you end up working for the Met Office, which is known for its weather and climate services?
5: It is. So it's a bit more of an unusual route for people to come into the Met Office. Um, I wanted to do geology ever since I was really small. Um, I had a book when I was at school that I wrote in um, when I was seven years old, that when I grow up, I want to be a geologist. And. Um, And then I did my geology degree and looked around and thought, I have no idea who I want to work for uh, or really what I want to do. I just knew that I had loved my four years at university. Um, So after I graduated, I actually went to work for the Environment Agency. For about four years, initially I worked in hydrometry and telemetry, which is all about measuring water in the environment. So I measured the water in rivers, I measured the water in boreholes, um, I measured the water in rain gauges, and I guess that was probably one of my first kind of interactions with the Met Office was when I was in charge of the volunteer rainfall observers across my network in Dorset. After about a year of doing that I went into flood risk management within the Environment Agency and then in 2008 I fancied a new challenge and I saw that there were jobs being advertised at the Met Office for climate consultants and I thought that sounded a really interesting job and that was where my career at the Met Office began.
2: And now you're very involved at the Met Office in their outreach activities and their STEM ambassador programme. What are some of the projects and initiatives you do there with the Met Office?
5: So, yeah, at at the moment, I lead the Met Office's outreach, um, trying to encourage that next generation of students to be enthused about STEM subjects. So that's science, technology, engineering and maths And we also really want to help young people understand the role of weather and climate change in their lives. Um, And also to be able to kind of respond appropriately during periods of severe weather. So we do all sorts of different activities all across the UK and beyond. Um, But I guess our our kind of flagship event is Met Office Science Camp, where around 60 young people come to the Met Office on a Friday evening after school Um, they do a whole series of fun activities in the evening and then they actually get to camp over in our conference rooms um, tents, which most seem to love. The teachers who accompany them less so. <laughs> and then they do um, they find out more on the Saturday morning about kind of careers at the Met Office, a bit about how we create our forecasts. And then they hopefully go away from their time with us inspired, enthused, but also quite tired
2: Absolutely. And then the other end of the spectrum, you do lots of work with young people, but for anyone sort of early careers or maybe more established in their careers, are there any books, podcasts, any resources you'd recommend to find out more about being a woman in STEM or just more widely in the workplace?
5: There's so much out there at the moment around um, feminism and what it's like to be a woman in STEM. There's loads of good resources, and particularly on um, the International Women's Day I'd recommend people go on to Twitter and take a look at all the resources that will be being shared um, at that time. Um, Two standout things for me that are quite recent finds. One is a book by Angela Sarni called Inferior, which is a book all about how science has essentially treated women over the years. Um, For example, how most or many drugs uh, generally trialed on men rather than women because of our hormonal cycles interfere with the way that drugs work. Many drugs have only been tested on men Um, and I find that absolutely fascinating the way that um, discrimination is inherent within some of our medical research. It's a fascinating book that kind of shines a light on um, many different aspects of what it's like to be a woman and how women and science intersect. On a slightly lighter note, um, a podcast that I discovered probably about 18 months ago, two years, was The Guilty Feminist, which if anyone is interested in having fun around feminism you have to give it a listen it has me crying tears of laughter tears of joy and tears of absolute rage and anger Um, and it's a great way to feel connected to a large group of women and men who are working towards a more equal society so I'd really encourage people to listen to that as well
2: great I'm definitely going to go and look up that book and podcast (laughs) thanks for joining us Felicity thank you very much So I'm now joined by our final two guests for our Women in Weather podcast today. We have Dr. Sylvia Knight, Head of Education at the Royal Meteorological Society, and Dr. Lindsay Bennett, Instrument Scientist for NCAS. So welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. Sylvia, we'll start with you. How did you first get into meteorology and to where you are today?
6: Well, I think at school I always appreciated that what I enjoyed most was where physics and geography met. I liked both subjects but it was the sort of down-to-earth bits of physics and the more physical bits of geography that I really enjoyed. I had really poor careers advice at school um, but somehow I got the right message that if I ended up doing a physics degree that would be a good way into meteorology. So that's what I did. I did a natural sciences degree specialising in physics um, and to be honest with that it was very easy to walk into meteorology into a PhD position at the University of Reading so that's what I did.
2: And then you went on to do your PhD after that?
6: Yes so that was my PhD at Reading and then I did a few postdoctoral positions at various universities around the country after that before coming to the Royal Meteorological Society.
2: And you've been with us now for almost 11 years. I can't believe it. so if you have any educational questions about how to get into the subject maybe university degree courses or teachers out there um sylvia runs netlink our website for schools um yeah or you just email sylvia if you have any questions before the podcast we were talking about maternity and paternity leave and while paternity leave and shared paternity leave is becoming increasingly offered many male colleagues are not taking advantage of this Um, Do you think there are any barriers for women taking maternity leave in STEM subjects that we can maybe better address?
6: Personally, I had a pretty tough time. I think I'd been doing a number of of postdoctoral research positions where my contracts were often very short. Um, And so when I came to go on to maternity leave, because I'd been on a very short term contract, I had very few rights and didn't really get the sort of benefits of a maternity leave that most people would, would expect so that was a bit rubbish. Um, but I did then come and work for the society and that, that all worked very well, except that I ended up having a, a far shorter break with my first child than I than I really wanted. I've seen other friends who were scientists who have decided that they wanted to have a longer career break when they've had their children. And I think almost all of them have had a really difficult time coming back into science. There are fellowships available for returning for women returning into science from a a longer career break Um, but they're often quite short and to actually demonstrate in that period of time to get the results to publish them and to, to demonstrate that you're a capable scientist again in that period of time is is nigh on impossible so almost all of them have ended up leaving science which is a great shame.
2: We were talking to this with Kat about the short term postdoctoral contracts Mm. that make it hard for women to keep publishing regularly in the profession and trying to address a way that either makes it easier for women to come back to their profession after they've taken maternity leave and just keep a continued interest in the subject. Mm. Um, throughout the podcast today, we've been talking about the lack of women managers in meteorology and the wider environment sector and business more generally. What are your thoughts on that? How do you think we can maybe progress to narrow the gender gap and any other comments?
6: I think the first thing to point out is that in meteorology, we we do quite well. We've got quite a lot of, of leading leading women in the field. I mean, when I was an early career scientist, there was there was Joe Haig, Leslie Gray, Julius Lingo, who are very much role models for, for women who are combining having a family with, with being in a senior position in meteorology. Um, but at the end of the day, some roles have to be full time. And there's no getting away from the fact that if you're in a leading management role, you probably have got to be working full time. And I think it would be really nice if the only barrier to having one of those roles was personal choice so for example i don't want to work full-time i don't want to yeah the way i combine my my personal my family life with with work means that yeah working full-time would be wrong for me if that was the only barrier to to me being in a in a in a higher position then i think that would be great um But we need to address whether that really is the only barrier, whether personal choice is the only barrier, or whether there still are glass ceilings of other descriptions.
2: Thanks so much for joining us today, Sylvia. So, Lindsay, what's your background into meteorology? You're now working for NCAS, which is the National Centre for Atmospheric Sciences. How did you get to being in that role?
7: My interest in meteorology actually probably dates back to sort of my teenage years um, studying geography. Um, I was particularly interested in natural hazards at the time, so anything dangerous, exciting, earthquakes, volcanoes. Um, But then I I put it down to um, documentaries from the US starting to come over onto our TV, um, storm chasing. So back in the mid-90s, storm chasing and um, research into severe storms and tornadoes was very, very topical. Um, and I started seeing these programmes on TV and it really inspired me. And I found everything to do with the weather, but particularly severe storms, um, really fascinating. So at that point onwards, I knew I wanted to to get into meteorology. Um, so that then led to doing the right A-levels in physics, maths um, and geography. Um, and then um, I did a degree in uh, meteorology and oceanography at UEA and then followed that up by continuing um, at Leeds for a PhD
2: and we've been talking a lot about STEM ambassador work today. Why did you join the STEM ambassador network and what sort of work have you been doing? I think it's
7: a really great scheme and um, gives you the opportunity to showcase um, what you do, the work that you do as a scientist and um, show students, show children um, the variety of work that they can, can get involved in, particularly as a meteorologist. So... When you say meteorologist to younger children, they'll immediately think of weather, weather presenters on the TV. But it's such a broad field and there's you a know, huge amount of, of careers and, and roles out there. Um, so it's a really great opportunity to show them the, the vast amount of, of areas um, that we're involved in. And I suppose it's, to, to, I would say, to see beyond the, the lab coat. So when you think of a scientist, children often think of somebody in the lab, which is you know, very justified. There are a lot of uh, excellent careers out there, uh, but to see beyond that um, and just see the variety of work that you can do in science, be it field work, be it computer modelling. Um, so I think it's a really great opportunity to, um, to showcase that.
2: And this is a question to both of you, really. Um, for young w- girls, especially looking to go into a field of meteorology, climate science, atmospheric physics, what A-levels should they be thinking about? Is there any work experience they can get involved in I think the, the A-levels that both Lindsay and I did, um, maths, physics and
6: geography, are pretty much the, the perfect combination. If you like, you can combine it with a fourth with a subject, whether that's further maths or something completely different. But that's definitely the best, the best foundation for a career in meteorology. There isn't much option on work experience. Um, you can either apply to the Met Office through their work experience scheme, which they tend to advertise towards the end of the year for work experience the following summer, or you can go to the University of Reading in February half-term. But as far as I know, that's the only work experience out there. Um, And then the Royal Meteorological Society does run a a careers information day for anybody, any young person who's interested in a potential career
7: in meteorology.
2: Great, and final question. Would you recommend a career in meteorology, climate science, and the work you've been doing? Have you enjoyed it so far?
7: Absolutely. Um, I've had some really fantastic opportunities in my my role. traveling around the world, um, taking part in research projects in the US, um, studying tornadoes, um, studying thunderstorms in the UK, in Germany. Um, so I've really enjoyed the work that I do. Um, some yeah, really great opportunities there.
2: That's nice to end on such a positive note. Thank you both for joining us. That marks the end of our Women in Weather podcast. Thank you to all seven of our speakers, Ellie Highwood, Liz Bentley, Jenny Campbell, Kat Muller, Felicity Liggins, Sylvia Knight and Lindsay Bennett. Our eighth podcast will be out next week, so watch this space or our next RMETS event is Space Satellites and Solutions, and that's in London on Wednesday the 21st of March. We'll be discussing how satellite applications support emissions monitoring by looking at the high-resolution observations of the Earth's surface and atmosphere, and there'll also be a panel discussion. You can register for that event on www.rmets.org and find out more about the work of the Society.